Hey, good morning. Welcome. If this is your first Sunday here, glad you could be here with us. My name's Mark. I serve as the teaching pastor here, and we are in a series in Paul's letter to the Romans. The title of the series is Transforming Grace. We're in chapter 10. We're actually going just a little bit out of order. We're going to read all of chapter 10 this morning. I'm going to focus on verses 5 through 21 because next Sunday we have a, a dear friend, uh, guest speaker, Randy Newman, uh, who will be here to talk uh, from us or to us from verses 1 through 4 about having a heart for Jewish people. So um, with that in mind, we're going to read all of chapter 10 this morning, but as I said, focus on verses 5 through 21. And Sydney Fox is going to read the chapter for us. So Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will ascend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all, the, to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Thank you, Sydney. At the beginning of the service, 
Vince communicated that two brothers, Steve Arbogast and Dave Holden, went home last week to be with the Lord. Their race ended. And I was reflecting on that as we were singing. And as I stand here, there's a reality that I don't know that I'll ever have another Sunday to preach to you. And there's a reality that you don't know that you'll ever have another Sunday here in this church or another Sunday on earth. Our times are in God's hands. And we don't know the number of days that we have. Let us hear God's word and respond to him as though this were our last Sunday. Let us hear God's word and may eternal things happen amongst us, in me, in us, through this unique moment that we have in our week, this moment of hearing and and responding to the word of God. So let's pray. Oh God, our Father, there are so many things that happen in our week, but there's nothing like this moment. Your spirit is here. We've gathered in the name of Jesus to sing praises to our great God. Your word is open in front of us. It's just been read to us. And now we pray. God, help us set aside all distractions. Help us set aside electronic distractions that are in our hands right now. Help us to set aside distractions that are in our minds. Help us to engage you and be engaged by you. Comfort those who need comfort. Encourage those who need encouragement. Strengthen those who are weak. Reveal Jesus Christ. Call the wayward home. Do eternal things now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with just a history question. 20th century, what were some of the great events that happened in the 20th century? If you were to think about what you know about the 20th century, what are some of the things that might come to mind, the momentous things? People might think about you know, two world wars, dramatic events. People might think about the digital revolution, the rise of the internet and the dramatic changes in communication. You might think politically about something like the rise of communism and its spread and, and somewhat decline at the end of the century. You might think about travel. People began the century traveling in horse and buggy and before the end of the century there was a man on the moon. A lot of things happened in the 20th century. But you know, one of the dramatic events, one of the momentous events in the last century was the creation of the nation of Israel. In 1948, just over 70 years ago, the Jewish people got a homeland again for the first time in approximately 1,800 years. In uh, the second century, the the nation of Israel was finally and sort of completely wiped out uh, by Rome. And this people, who have been a people for 30 centuries and, and counting, well, 1,800 years ago, they, they, they lost their homeland. And in 1948, that, that homeland was uh, returned to them. And it's remarkable, when you stop and think about it, it's, it's remarkable, first, that the, the Jewish people have remained a people at all. Um, it's, it's extraordinary that, uh, they, that this people group has existed uh, so long, not only without a nation of their own, but 
in the history of, of, of all the anti-Semitism that's, that's gone on as well. You can think back to the story uh, of Haman in, in uh, the book of Esther and his desire to wipe out all Jewish people. You can think to the 20th century and uh, Adolf Hitler and the, and the Third Reich. You can uh, even just go back to Charlottesville a couple years ago and, and the anti-Semitism that reared its ugly head there. And it's just all the more astonishing to see the resiliency of these people who call on Yahweh, the Lord, and believe in the scriptures we call our Old Testament. This people who wait for and look to the Messiah. And you know, when I read through my Bible, I'd expect these people who know the scriptures and have the covenants, have the promises, are waiting for the Messiah, I might expect that they would be first in line to worship and serve Jesus, the Messiah, when he comes on the scene. And the reality is, as Jesus does come on the scene, there are a small number uh, of Jewish people who do follow him. The early church was, was entirely Jewish to, to start with. But the reality is that most Jewish people in the first century and most Jewish people since then have failed to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. That's the problem that Paul is addressing as he's writing Romans 9, 10, and 11. His, his Jewish kinsmen he says, are zealous for God, but they lack understanding. Now, Paul, the writer of this letter, he's a Jewish Christian. And he's speaking to this problem of his people, these people that he loves and longs for to to know the Messiah. And so what happens is in Romans 10, he summarizes what they're missing. And in God's providence, Paul writing in Romans 10 gives us sort of a a, a basics of Christianity right here in one chapter. The problem of Israel's unbelief results in him writing for us some of the basics that, that they're rejecting that he would hope that they might em- embrace. And so this chapter, Romans chapter 10, put a bookmark on that. This is a, this is a go-to chapter. If you're trying to understand Christianity, maybe you've come here and and you want to understand more about who this Jesus is and what Christianity is all about. Romans 10 is a perfect place to go. If you're a parent and you want to teach your kids about Christ, you want to teach your kids the gospel, Romans 10 is a go-to place. If you're reaching out to someone and trying to help them understand what Christianity is all about, Romans 10 is a fantastic place to go. The basics are here. Who is Jesus? How can we be saved? How, do the, how does the gospel spread? That's all right here in Romans 10. So let's engage what, what we have here. And as I said, I'm going to focus on uh, f- verses 5 through 21. And then uh, Randy next week will help us uh, focus on verses 1 through 4. So we begin with this. The first Christian basic is simply this. Confess and believe that Jesus is Lord. If you've been in church for a while, you may just be nodding your head. Yes, yes, I know this. Yes, I've heard this. But I... I want you to hear this good news again. We're going to just, just take this and open it up a little bit. Let's, let's just think about the implications and, and how this opens up to us in this chapter. The reality is most people in the world believe in God, a God of some kind. Most people in the world are theists. And if you believe that there is a God, then the question becomes, how can you be on the good side of that God? How can you be in a right relationship with that God? What do you need to do for that God to accept you? If you die tonight, why would that God admit you into heaven or give you 
the ultimate reward, whatever you think that might be. Now, on this point, virtually every religion teaches the same thing. And that is, the way you need to do is you need to be a good person. You need to do the right things. You need to pray the right prayers, follow the right rituals. And if you do those things well enough, you'll be rewarded in the end. This is a righteousness, to use the language of this chapter, it's a righteousness, a rightness with God that's based on what? It's based on what you do, right? It's based on your works. And so you set out. So the object of your life in this sense, in this path, is to be the kind of person that God will accept. And you want to stop and ask, am I the kind of person God will accept? What have I done? That's what you look at to answer that question. You, you look at how you've lived. Billions of people on the planet today buy into this system. And this is not Christianity. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a, a self-confidence, in a sense, a, a form of self-salvation because salvation comes about through what you do and accomplish. And this is precisely where Christianity differs. To come into right standing with the God of the Bible, you don't have to do spectacular works. That's what this verse 6 is all about. You don't have to say who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. You don't have to do some spectacular religious works to get right with God. It's actually much easier than that. It's so easy. The word is near you, verse 8 says. It's in your mouth and in your heart, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. So what hard things must you do for God to be impressed enough with you to accept you into his family? Well, the answer is here in verse 9, verse 10. Here's what it says. If you've read this a hundred times, listen as though you'd never heard it before. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Here are the basics. Here is the essential gospel. This may seem way too easy, right? What, there's no... There's no certification exam that I have to pass. There's no entrance fees to to get in. Let's unpack this a little bit. These two statements are are this word of faith that we see there in verse 8. This is a concise summary of the gospel. All these 66 books of the Bible and this this big story of the gospel are, are squeezed into these two verses. Let's unpack these two phrases in verse 9 in reverse order. Believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead. We sang, I think almost every song this morning touched on this as we were singing. There are historical facts that you must know about Jesus and embrace in order to be saved. This is why I love the Apostles' 
Creed, the Apostles' Creed, is a summary of these basic facts. What do we believe? Well, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. There are basic facts that we must know about Jesus Christ. And this rising from the dead part is is the most important of all of them. He rose from the dead. If you Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This is so vital. I find in my thoughts, I find in my day, I can just go through and I can find my my mind wandering. And I can find doubts just sprout up like weeds in my brain. Is this really true? What if if it's a big hoax? What if somebody's pulled the wool over my eyes? What if... What if somebody else is right about this? What do you do when you have thoughts like that? Well, here's what I do. Here's my fallback plan in moments like this. I go right here. Did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? Now, I've been to funerals. I've been to memorial services. I've been to cemeteries. I know what happens when people die. When people die, they stay dead. I know that. But what I'm told here is that Jesus Christ didn't do that. This wasn't a resuscitation. He didn't rise for a few days or a few years. He rose never to die again. It's well attested to. Hundreds of witnesses carefully researched historical accounts. So here's what happens. If Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, if he really isn't dead now, if he really did ascend, if he really is at the right hand of the Father, if he really is returning, the dominoes all start to go from there. Maybe they don't fall down. Maybe they start standing up again the way they were supposed to. And that unraveling that doubt is doing in my mind begins to turn to faith in a living Savior. Oh, death, where is your sting? Conquered. Oh, sin, where is your power? Conquered. Oh, Satan, where's your victory? Conquered. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Back it up. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. I want you to think about that little phrase. Oh, there's so much in here. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I want you just to notice three things here. First, if you confess with your mouth, just to think about that with me. We're more than just souls. We're more than just containers of ideas and doctrines. We are embodied beings. Our bodies matter. And what happens in our bodies matters to God. Jesus comes and he lays claim not just to your mind, not just to your belief system. Not just to what you think about on Sunday mornings. He lays claim to our bodies as well as our minds. And so if you confess with your mouth, 
is a way of saying, when you confess that Jesus is Lord, when you say that out loud and acknowledge that, it's one of the reasons we love to have people do that in their baptisms. It gives the opportunity through what they proclaim, through their written testimonies, through their verbal testimonies, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. When your mouth does that, what you're doing is you're saying, the rest of my body is in full agreement, right? The rest of my body has signed up for the same program. So all that I am is now coming in line with Jesus being Lord. So the first thing we notice here is we confess this with our mouth. The second is Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. It's a political statement. Caesar, the emperor at the time, was the big boss in the Roman Empire, the only superpower in the world, the first century. He had the power to crucify people. He could tell you to pay taxes. He could order you to go back to your birthplace so that he could take a census. And, you know, when he told people to pay taxes or go home for a census, well, Christians would do these things. But sometimes the Caesars, the emperors, they wanted to be called Lord. And at that point, that was a a deification. That was a statement of worship. And that was a line that Christians would not cross. Christians kept getting in trouble right there because when they were forced to bowing down to Caesar as Lord or Jesus as Lord, they said, it's either or for me and I pick Jesus. If Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Third thing I want you to notice. If Jesus is Lord then Jesus is what Yahweh is, the Lord of the Old Testament. Look at the, look at the text here. Look at verse 12. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same, see these, see these words? The same Lord is Lord of all. Okay, and then verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whose name are you calling on in order to be saved? That verse 13 is a quote from a prophet named Joel. You may remember in the first sermon that was preached after Pentecost, the Apostle Peter quoted the same verse. Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, if you look that up in your Old Testament, you'll see that word Lord is in all capital letters. It's the Hebrew word for Yahweh. It was, their, it was the name that God gave himself, explained was his name. That word is used thousands of times in the Old Testament. And now we are being told that when you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. But that Lord is being associated with Jesus. Jesus is everything Yahweh is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a triune God. Now, this would have been blasphemy to a Jewish person. No wonder this was so hard for Jewish people to swallow. How can you say, call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved and say that Jesus is that Lord? He's a human being. To call this Jesus Lord is to say he's everything God is. It's a lot more than he's a sort of a personal savior. He's a ticket out of hell. Get out of hell free card to play at the right time. No. To call Jesus Lord is to say that he's the creator and I live in his world and I belong to him by creation and by redemption. This was a big deal for me. 
when I began to understand the gospel, I got it in sort of stages. And what I understood first was my need for forgiveness. And I called on the name of the Lord for forgiveness. But I didn't get what it meant to call on the name of the Lord, the big boss, the king, the one who's in charge. And it took a couple years. I was in college when I finally realized that to call Jesus Lord means he's in charge of everything. It's all his. So a career, sex life, free time. And I'm wrestling with this. I'm an American. I've got rights here. I can vote. It doesn't work like that with the Lord. Matt McCartney was telling me about an illustration he uses to explain this. I found it helpful. He says, think about, think about your life like a house. You've got all these rooms inside. Which of the rooms are open to Jesus? Which ones does he have access to? Maybe you're afraid of what's going to happen if you let him into this room. Maybe you're afraid of what he's going to find out as if he doesn't already know. Or maybe you're afraid of what he's going to ask you to do with what you've got in this room. What holds us back? What are we hanging on to to prevent him from being the Lord of everything in our lives? Do you know, to call Jesus Lord means to give him the key to the whole thing. It's not just the key. You give him the title, the deed. I belong to you now. And every room belongs to you. And all that I am belongs to you. Oh, parents, I want to encourage you. I want to urge you. Memorize Romans 10, 9 and 10 with your kids. Teach these verses to your kids. I want to encourage you as you go into your week, bring this confession. Jesus is Lord. Bring this with you into your week. Maybe you're walking into work on Wednesday morning. Just, just walk in. Just remembering, confessing. Jesus is Lord of this workplace and this worker. You're opening up your phone. You're on your Instagram account. You're opening up your computer. You're going to look at something. I confess right now, Jesus is the Lord of this screen and what I'm about to take in. I just want to encourage you, bring this confession into your life, to every corner of your life, because he's the Lord of every room. And he's the Lord of every moment. He's the Lord of the future. He's the Lord of the state of Virginia. He's the Lord. And so let us bring this confession in. Keep it working in our lives. That's the first basic. The second basic is this. Go and tell others about Jesus. Now, verses 14 and 15, there are certain verses in the Bible that when you read them, they just scream out, preach me. Just preach me. And verses 14 and 15 are two of these preach me verses. And so on February 24th, we're going to do a sermon just from these two verses because I think they chart out our mission together just brilliantly. So, We'll come back to those verses later. But we just want to ask the question this morning, how does this news about Jesus spread? And we get it kind of in reverse order. Well, they've got to have someone to call on. Well, before they can call on someone, they've got to have someone to to believe in. And in order to believe in this person, they've got to hear about him. And in order to hear about him, somebody's got to preach. In order for somebody to preach, they've got to be sent. And so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so the way the word spreads is by Christians being sent and going and telling others this good news. Everyone has a part to play in this. Every person in this room has a part to play in verses 14 and 15 in this sending, preaching so that others can hear this going and, and telling. You may 
Go as far as your kids in your living room. That may be as far as you go this week in talking about this. You may go to your office. You may find yourself at some point in some other part of the world. Appreciated. Kenneth keeps, keeps asking me, if you don't tell the people in your neighborhood about Jesus, who will? Who's been sent to my neighborhood? Who's been sent to your neighborhood, to your workplace? And the, and the way it usually works, if you listen to how people explain how they came to faith in Christ, almost always they came to faith in Christ after somebody talking to them about it. Right? We need to hear this news in an embodied way. Now, you may be sitting here this morning thinking, yeah, but I don't have very much to offer. I, I'm, I'm nothing special. And I want to just remind you this morning, God loves to use the unexpected. Read through the Bible and you find the people that end up being spokesmen and spokeswomen for God are often the most unexpected. Moses, when he was summoned to speak, he said, oh, not me, I don't speak very well. Mary ends up being the first proclaimer that Jesus has been raised from the dead. God loves to just use the unexpected. I was thinking about a story this week about a man named Daniel Payne. He was born in 1811 to free black <coughs> parents in Charleston, South Carolina. At age 18, he was converted. And when he was converted, he, he felt God call him to set apart his life to educate himself and then to educate, to be an educator to his people. Now, this was greatly needed at the time. In fact, in terms of educating his people, there was a real need for an educated clergy. One of the writers of the day said, up to this time, any ignoramus who imagined that he was called to preach, who thought that the Lord had need of him, felt it was his right to be ordained under the impression that if a man opened his mouth, the Lord would fill it. So all you needed to be a pastor and be ordained was just a desire to do it. There was a need for training of these preachers who were going to go out and preach the word. And so, so Payne began a school. But shortly after he started the school, the South Carolina General Assembly passed a law that made it illegal to teach any colored person, slave or free, to read or write. You heard that right. In the 1830s, it was illegal to teach any African-American, slave or free, to read or write. What happens now? Doesn't look very promising. So he moves north. He goes to Gettysburg, goes to seminary there, ends up <coughs> laboring and teaching and taught for decades. And over many years of work, one writer records that this one man almost single-handedly raised the level of training and education for the preachers in his denomination, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. One guy. What difference can one person make now, you may not be called like this man Daniel Payne was, but God has a place for you in this story, a going and telling place. How much did an 18-year-old black man living in South Carolina in 1830 have going for him to spread the gospel or to equip preachers? You may not think those prospects are very good, and they weren't. But there's someone else in the story, and that same God is in the story today. So I just want to encourage you. God has a place for every one of us in the going and telling, in the sending and supporting those who are sent. That's a Christian basic. The word spreads, the gospel spreads as God's people go and tell the word. And finally this, number three, 
God is waiting for you to turn to Christ, but he won't wait forever. Look with me at verses 18 through 21. Here, here's the situation. Paul, this Jewish Christian, is just reflecting on his people, agonizing, hoping that Jewish people will come to faith in Christ. And he keeps reaching back and, and looking into the Old Testament. Ten times in this chapter he quotes from the Old Testament. Ten times he sees this unfolding story. And so here he says, look, what's the problem? Have they not heard? Well, sure, they have. And then he quotes Psalm 19. The, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And he's saying as the, as the sky proclaims the glories of God to everyone who can, who can see, well, preachers have made their way to Jewish people to share this good news for them. But what happened then? Did they not understand? And the answer is no, they didn't, they didn't get it. Their hearts weren't open to the word. And so, quoting now from Deuteronomy, he says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. God is saying <clears throat> to Israel, I love you so much that when I reach out to other people, I hope you'll see and be jealous of what they're experiencing with me and want to come into that too. And then he closes with this statement. Verse 21, it says, from Isaiah 65, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Yeah, ever been in a relationship with someone who just, whatever you said that was A, they always said B. When you said left, they said right. When you said up, they said down. Just contrary, just resisting you, rejecting your authority or your place in their life. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a workplace situation. Maybe it's a team. Maybe you can think of, a, of how, do you, do you know how difficult it is to stay in a relationship with somebody who's like that? Do you know God knows what that's like? Because he's lived that way with his people. The message translation puts it this way. Day after day, I beckoned Israel with open arms and got nothing for my trouble but cold shoulders and icy stares. Day after day, beckoning. Won't you come home? Won't you come home? Won't you turn and come to me? Won't you leave your false gods? Won't you turn away from the lies and the idols? Won't you come home? Day after day. But all he says he gets, cold shoulders and icy stares. And so what does he do? Just think hard right here about the character of God. What does he do? I'll come to the altar. His arms are open wide. What does he do? He sends his son to spread his arms on a cross. And from that cross, Say, Father, forgive them. What does he do? He assembles a people to 5200 Ox Road on February 10th. And once more he reaches out. And he says, oh, won't you come home? Won't you come home? Won't you turn from your sin? Won't you turn from your wayward ways? Won't you come home? Oh, can you see the love of God? May we be caught up in this love. May we be conformed to this love. 
And for someone here this morning, may you respond to this love. This is an incredible offer, but it's a limited time offer. God's waiting for you to turn to him. But you're going to die one day. Jesus is going to return one day. And the end is going to come one day. And at that moment, there will be judgment. And for all who have confessed Jesus as Lord, believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead, there will be life and joy in a new creation. And for all who've rejected that message, there will be judgment and eternal consequences. Shame and grief and agony. And there's a decision in front of every person today, including every person seated here this morning. His arms are open wide. Won't you come? Come for salvation. Come for rescue. Come and affirm that God has made this Jesus Lord over all of life and over your life. He's a Lord over death. He's Lord over heaven and hell. He's Lord over demons and angels. He's Lord over history and time. He's Lord over you and me. He's Lord over your desires, over your thoughts, over the things that you plan on, the things that you do. Come and acknowledge his right to supremacy in every corner of your life and in every corner of the universe. Come and repent of your taking his place in control of your life and give him the lordship that he rightfully deserves. And it's so much better when he has it. Take those keys to your house. Put them in his hands. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So come. Come. Let's just pause here and pray for a moment. Worship team, come on back up. Oh God, we thank you for your arms open wide, stretched out, even to a disobedient and rebellious people. And I pray for anybody who's in the valley of decision right now. Pray for those who are struggling with the keys to the house of their life. We don't want to give up something that's in one of those rooms. I pray, oh God, for grace and help to turn to you. Holy Spirit, we pray, come. Come and give a vision of Jesus Christ the Lord. Come and give grace to every person here to joyfully confess that Jesus is Lord. God has raised him from the dead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, and let's sing to this great Lord and King.
like to have prayer, to receive prayer, to stand alongside somebody else, to intercede together to God, and to make our requests known to Him. And as Mark was preaching through this message and talking about the condition that we find ourselves in apart from God, and yet God in His graciousness has given us a wonderful invitation to come. And there are people here this morning, you're wrestling with God even right now. And you might be saying, there's just no way I'm going to turn my heart to the Lord. No way. And I just want to encourage you, surrender. It'll be the best decision you've ever made. You might think you're winning. You might think you can stiff arm God. But I'm telling you, it doesn't work. I tried for 25 years to go like this to God. It does not leads to death and destruction. And yet this offer that's being given to you today, it's an offer of grace. It says, you're never going to earn my favor. I've done all the work for you. Just come. Come and receive grace. And if that's you here this morning, I really want to urge you, don't leave this auditorium without at least talking to somebody about the fact that you're even thinking about it and that you're even wrestling with it just so they can pray for you. Or even greater still, that you would just say, you know, today's the day. Today's the day I want to make Jesus my Lord. Lord of all of my life. Give him the title to your house. Oh, what a great day. This is that God holds out the offer of salvation for all who will call upon his name. For our guests, thanks so much for coming today. We're just glad you could be with our church family here on a Sunday morning. We love it when God brings people to us, and we hope you enjoyed your time with us here today. If there's anything we can pray for you, please feel free to come on up. We'd love to pray for you. A few announcements as we go out. Dave Holden's memorial service will be here at 5 o'clock on Thursday. Stephanie will be out in the lobby with the table regarding interest in the Dominican Republic. Free lunch for all the college and career people. And the Hensons are going to come up as well. And if you want to just thank them for their service here, and just encourage them on their way down to Lynchburg, please, Hensons are going to come on up here as well. Please stop by and express your love and care for them. And as we leave this place today, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.